Hailing from the heartland of America, atop the high bluffs of Western Iowa, comes the voice of the church. God himself blew on history so that there would be a light. A timely message, convicting words, burning with passion for righteousness and justice again. Why don't you believe in something this morning? Why don't you believe in a church? Why don't you believe in the glory of dominion that God gave us the power to build a building on a hill that stands for something in the community, that we're not afraid to stand up for what we believe in and tell the lawmakers and the rulers in this nation and every other nation in the world, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He's coming back and you better repent of your sins or you're gonna answer for them. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth not shall be damned. So what do you really believe? People that believe in Jesus Christ, that He was buried, that He was resurrected on the third day, that He's coming again, and that men will answer for every idle word and every wrong deed, that there is justice beyond the grave. That is the statement that is made when you see a church and a steeple and a cross in a community and in a nation. And God cares about this building and He cares about the churches that sprinkle the landscape of this nation. And He wants them to be filled with people that have some passion, that understand what it means to be a Christian, that aren't slobs drooling with all of their candy and their chocolate and their soda and their entertainment wanting to hear a preacher to tell them that they're just fine the way that they are and they don't need to change and they don't need to worry about repentance. They don't need to get the sin out of their life. Those are not good preachers. And those are not legitimate churches. And their buildings become an aggravation and a mocking point. And if you go to Europe today, you'll see cathedral after cathedral that were beautiful. And they're empty. And if we don't get right in this nation, that's going to happen. Look around you at the sloth. Look at the empty pews. Look at the big gaps. They didn't want to hear the truth. Believe in something today. Welcome to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the sermon. Adam had all kinds of stuff, but it wasn't on behalf of the kingdom. He didn't acquire and, and exercise the dominion instinct on behalf of God. He did it on behalf of himself. That's dysfunction. Dysfunctional dominion. What happened sexually? Well, we know. Two things characterized the flood of Noah. Two. They were thieving and stealing and murdering one another over stuff, and they were thieving and stealing and murdering one another over sex. Sexual promiscuity and no respect for private property was so rampant and so bad on the planet, so God wanted Adam to fill the world up with righteous children, but what did he do? Because he refused to yield his dominion instinct to God, and he refused to yield his sexual power to God, the world was filled up still because he used both of those powers. They had lots of babies, didn't they? They acquired a lot of stuff. They were rich, weren't they? And the whole world was filled up with garbage, with total wickedness. And what did God do? He had to kill them all. He flooded the whole world. 
more chilling is when Jesus is asked in Matthew 24, what's it going to be like when you come back? What's it going to be like when, when God comes here to earth to rule this planet? What's it going to be like? And Jesus says this, listen carefully, it will be just as it was in the days of Noah. Adam did it wrong. Suddenly, you find Abraham in history. I won't speak too much about him, but Abraham specifically was willing and had a, an illumination about his dominion instinct and his sexual instinct needing to come in under the authority of God. And look what God did with him. And then we move along in time and we find David. King David has his epiphany, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, before I read this, you may be in a position to understand why a theologian says this about this particular chapter. According to Walter Bruggeman, who is a theologian of the Scriptures, he says that 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29, this is a quote, the story of David and Nathan discussing the future transition from the tabernacle of God, the tent, to a permanent temple of God is, quote, the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus, one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for modern evangelical faith. Now, why would he say that? Corpus is a gathering of documents. He says that 2 Samuel 7, 29 verses, the dramatic theological center of the entire Samuel corpus, one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for today's evangelical faith. Now, why would he say that? It's because he understands and connects the dots to the Garden of Eden and to what happens here and to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom. And this is the problem. Most people seek him second, third, fifth, some people 51, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, I hope that you're not seeking God 51st today. I'm not going to read all 29 verses, but let's just look at the first one. Afterward, when the king, say king. You know what, you know what someone is that it's a king? They have a kingdom, right? If you're a king, you have a kingdom. Now, so here's the question. And I can promise you, as I study this, I'm absolutely certain that when Jesus said what he did in Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added unto you. I know he was thinking of this particular moment in the Torah, or in the prophets, the Old Testament. Jesus was specifically relating to this discussion, which is why the theologian says of everything in the entire ministry of Samuel, this chapter is the most important thing for evangelical faith today. This is the center of everything, this first verse. Afterward, when the king, sitting in his own kingdom, I emphasize that, sat in his house, say his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, now I dwell in the house of cedar trees, and the ark of God remaineth within curtains. Then Nathan said unto the king, Go and do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. 
This is one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible because Adam and Eve would not seek dominion on behalf of God and his kingdom. They sought their own dysfunctional dominion. That's what most human beings are doing. Most people that go to church will walk out the door today after their services around the country and they'll go right back to their dysfunctional Adamic dominion. They are not taking dominion. But David gets a landslide of knowledge here and he says, wait, 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 wait. I have a kingdom. I'm in a beautiful house. By the way, I've, I've stood there chilling right where that verse was written when he was talking about his house of cedars. They found it only about six years ago. I was just there a month ago standing in the archaeological site where they found the very palace in the city of David and we saw the stone foundation beneath the cedars that he's talking about where the walls were. I've stood right where David stood. It was amazing. And he has this epiphany. I got a permanent palace and my God is still in a portable tent. That's not right. Whose kingdom was David seeking first at that moment? He had been seeking his own. And all of a sudden he realizes, I'm supposed to seek God's kingdom first. What's wrong with me? Nathan the prophet goes, Woo, there's an anointing on that. Go do that. God will bless you. Of course, the story develops. David goes and he finds that he's in trouble with God for some sin that had happened under his watch. And he was in deep, deep trouble with God over the sin. So God says to David, who has already had this epiphany, I, I've been building my own kingdom. I need to build God's kingdom. This isn't right. Well, then he goes out and does some more wrong things, gets in trouble. God tells him, go up to the top of Mount Moriah and build an altar and sacrifice for your sin. So David humbly, oh, sorry, God, okay. He goes to the top and goes right where God told him, and guess what he finds out? He finds out that the place God told him to build the altar and repent, somebody else owns it. It belongs to someone else. And so he begins to explain. It's eight acres. It's at the top of Mount Moriah. It's still there today. It's where Solomon built the temple of God. I've seen the stones they were so big, so heavy, when they destroyed the temple and threw the stones of the wall down. The stones hit the ground. They're so heavy. And they were driven about 40 40 feet underground and then the stone would spear into the ground the next stone would hit it and drive it deeper and the next stone would hit and drive it deeper and they just excavated this they found this tunnel uh, that's in history where the Romans found Jews hiding in the siege of Jerusalem and I think it was 70 AD and they found where the where the it's a sewer it's basically the old ancient sewer and 2,000 Jews hid in the sewer at the, during the siege of Jerusalem Romans finally found them and killed them all and about about Two and a half years ago, they found that original tunnel. And I walked through it with the archaeologist. It was remarkable. And when we got to one spot in the deep, deep tunnel, he said, now, we are directly beneath the Wailing Wall. You're about 40 feet underneath all the Jews that are praying above us at the Wailing Wall. We're underneath them. He said, really? Yeah, it runs right under the wall. And he says, look at this. He turns his flashlight on. There's this huge perfectly square stone, a building block. I mean, it's massive. It's, I, I can't remember how many tons, you know, 20 tons, huge thing, right? And it's the ceiling. He said, that is one of the original stones from the temple when it was torn down and they threw it and it kept 
pounding and pounding that drove them so deep underground. He said, it's literally the ceiling above us here in the sewer. Of course, it was not a functional sewer. I just want to let you know. I would not climb around in a functional sewer. Hundreds of years had gone by, no bad smells. I was all right. So David goes up to the top of this because he's got to make a sacrifice. He's like, oh, man, somebody else owns this. I can't just go build an altar in the middle of somebody's properties. He talks to the farmer. It was a threshing floor, about eight acres large. He says to the farmer, God has given me instructions. I'm to come here and repent. I'm to make a sacrifice and send up incense before the Lord and to get down on my knees and ask for forgiveness. And the farmer says, look, go ahead, just do it. You know, it's yours. I just give it to you. David says something. Now, listen to it. Listen. He's getting his dominion straightened out. He says, no, 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 no. How could I give God what cost me nothing? Because the farmer said, take my animals. You can have the land. Build your altar with stones. I'll give you everything you need to make the sacrifice. And David's like, well, then I'm not making a sacrifice. I'm making, it's hurting you. It's not hurting me. He says, how can I give God what cost me nothing? He says, no, I'm, I'm paying top dollar for everything. So David puts a down payment on with silver shekels, buys the eight acres, puts down a, a deposit, comes back later in the book of Second Chronicles and actually pays 600 shekels of silver for that eight acres. He purchases the livestock so that they are owned by him and then gives it to God to say that he's sorry. And that is where everything turns in the kingdom because when you put God first, what does he say he'll do? Well, then he'll build your kingdom. If you build his first, he'll build yours. So God makes an arrangement, enters into what's called the Davidic covenant, and he says to David, you put my kingdom first, so here's what I'm doing. I'm building you an everlasting covenant. So dysfunctional dominion was handled a particular way in Genesis. And this is what I don't want to be your legacy. God has decided he knows exactly how to deal with you people that make the kingdom second. And he knows exactly how to deal with you people that make God's kingdom number 51. Do you know what it is? You're dying. He knows exactly how to deal with you. He's not going to let you establish the power of dominion and the power of procreation in a way that is obscene and frustrating to his plan and design for the world. So he immediately took Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, you're out of here. You don't have the right priorities. You took something that's not yours. You don't, you're misusing your property instinct. Of course, they went on to misuse their sexual instinct. Get out of the garden. And then he positioned an angel, the Bible says, with a flaming sword. I got to tell you something, folks. I believe that that angel was real, that his sword was on fire, and he is still here. And God says to the angel, don't let them back in. I will not allow them to what? Essentially, I will not allow Adam and Eve in this state where they will not yield their sexual instincts to me. They will not yield their property instinct to me. I will not allow them to eat from the leaves of the tree of life and then establish a dominion that is an offense to my original plan. So they can't come back in, and the angel says, no, you don't get to come in here. Ladies and gentlemen, at the judgment seat of Christ, when you are questioned on whether or not you sought first the kingdom of God, and whether or not you actually genuinely entered into it, that angel, I believe, will be the one that escorts you 
to hell. He's still guarding it. He will not allow you to establish a dominion that is an offense. Here's what it means, rich man. The Bible says to men like me, warn the rich man. I like to say it this way. I think it's probably more accurate. Warn the greedy man. You're listening to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Don't miss the conclusion of this sermon after these messages. Our country is no longer in need of a great awakening. America is in need desperately of a resurrection. And there's a difference between a resurrection and a great awakening. In far too many American churches, the Great Commission has been reduced. The emphasis is on really getting people ready to die. But the church is not here to get people prepared to die so much as we're here to equip people and how to truly live. I've written a new book that talks about this. It's called A Storm, A Message, A Bottle. You can get a copy of the book at beyondthewallsradio.com. God bless you. Welcome back to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. I gotta tell you something about money. Some of the greediest people I've ever met in my life were poor, and some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life were rich. How much money you have has very little impact on your heart. How much money you have only helps us to see better what was already the problem in your heart. And so I can see the same greed, and cash is paper, you know? If I had a briefcase with $500,000 in big greenbacks, and I slapped it down in front of you, put it in your lap, it wouldn't turn you into a greedy monster. It does not have that, it's paper. It does not have the power to affect your moral state of being. It would, however, possibly expose the problem already hidden in you that no one was aware of. It's very important to say this because people think that money has like this magical ability to make you into a bad person. It's nonsense. So Jesus commands preachers, warn the rich man. Well, in particular, because rich people, unfortunately, according to the doctrines of Jesus, they have a much more difficult time with this kind of priority teaching that I'm giving. Warn the rich man. You can't buy your way into heaven. But I'm going to warn everybody. I'm going to warn the poor people too because we've probably got more poor people here than we have rich. I'm warning everybody, the greedy man. Be careful what you do with your instincts to acquire stuff. And so he puts a flaming sword. He says, don't let them back in. I don't want them eating from the tree. I'm not going to allow them to establish a dominion that is an offense to me. I'm not going to allow them to create and fill the world up with such evil people that it completely derails my purpose for making the world. So he killed everybody at the flood, didn't he? He says, I'm not putting up with you people. Not doing, you're not doing this. So David resubmits his instinct to obtain and own stuff. He buys land, ladies and gentlemen, that becomes the property upon which Solomon built a physical temple. And now let me say this very simple. When you rediscover your dominion instinct and truly submit it to God, the first thing that happens, this is really good news for most of you, the first thing that happens is you take the shekels 
that you've earned in your life, and you purchase property on behalf of, not you, the kingdom. When you have an epiphany of what your dominion instinct is about, you stop the dysfunctional dominion that God hates so much that he made sure you're going to die so you don't get to keep doing it. You stop just using your finances and your money and the acquisition of property because you have this instinct. You stop using it just for you. You stop being in orbit around your own agenda. And the first thing that you do is you take your wealth and you purchase property for the kingdom of God through the church. This congregation is filled with people who have taken dominion. Every drop of finances, all the time, the effort that so many of you have put over the years into purchasing this land and building this structure, that was taking dominion. It wasn't so much giving as it was taking. Together we take dominion. Alone, you're just greedy. And that's really what's essential about understanding the dominion instinct and the sexual instinct. Together, listen to me, together we get souls born twice. Together, a husband and a wife get babies born once. When you enter into the kingdom, the first thing that you do, and you're in orbit around the idea of how can I help the kingdom of God obtain property and get people born a second time? Now, I just gave you a very simple description. You can locate yourself this morning. If those two issues are not the center of your heart every day, how do I help the church of God take dominion in this world, obtain everything that it needs to get people born twice? Then you may be one of the people I was warning you about. You're not taking dominion. You're in dysfunctional dominion. And here's, here's what happens. A man that is in dysfunctional dominion Richest man in the world, dysfunctional dominion. It's all about him. All of his wealth was, was about him. You say, yeah, but they give to the poor and they do good things. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But it's still about them. It makes them feel good. They kind of feel an obligation. I've got to give back. It's still coming from a pagan soul that is not regenerated. So they do good works that are filthy rags. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. And so you have pagans with all this money doing good things, but it's not right because it's that tree in the middle again. It's not theirs. They still see themselves as being generous. But you're not generous to God. He didn't need your stuff. You need him. You need his stuff. So God says, I don't like arrogant, dysfunctional dominion. You're, you're going to die. You're going to be buried you're going to have an end. You're limited. Here's what happens. A rich man builds up all his wealth. The book of Ecclesiastes warns all of us the same thing. You build up all your wealth. You have all your power, all your popularity, and then you die and your children inherit it. And what do they do? Well, some of them do okay with it and some of them don't. And time destroys everything you acquired. And your name is remembered no more. This is what the Bible promises to every man and every... It's a promise. You can't get around it. If you take dominion on your own behalf and you remain in the position of David building his own kingdom and not really concerned about God and you don't have a change, your dominion and everything you acquire in this life someday is worth nothing. You pass it on to your kids. 
God's not going to be superintending the future of your grandchildren for you. You don't have that covenant. It doesn't work that way. And it's all for you, and it will all blow away like the dried leaves blowing across my grass this morning. And no one will ever remember your name. But this promise is made. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. When you begin to take dominion and you yield your dominion instinct to the Lord God Almighty, and you say, I, I'm in a partnership. I want to do two things. I want to take dominion on behalf of the church, and I want to get people born twice and fill the world with righteousness. God responds to you the same that he responded to David and the same that he responded to Jesus and the same that he responded to Abraham and the same that he responded to patriarchs all through the Bible, he says, you put me first, I'm going to take care of your children and your children's children. I'm going to establish, you're establishing my house? Good, I'm establishing your house. And this is how covenants are made. God says to David, oh, you want to put me in first position? That's a good idea, because guess what? Now I can put you in first position. Covenants are an exchange of balance and equal just agreements. God says to Abraham, give me your son. He didn't really want his son. He just wanted to see if he would do it. And Abraham was willing to give God his only begotten. For Abraham so loved God that he was willing to give his only begotten son. And God said, stop. That's all the grounds I need to give the world my only begotten son. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what it's about to enter into the kingdom. If you will begin to take dominion on behalf of God's kingdom and on behalf of the church and be concerned about getting people born twice, your body will still die, but you will live forever. And long after you're gone, 150 years from this moment, Every last one of us will be dead and buried, even our children. 150 years from this moment, the covenant that I have made with God and the dominion that I have taken on his behalf will remain. He will not allow the accomplishments that we have achieved and the dominion that we have taken for the sake of the gospel. It's a vested interest. We are partners in a business, and he doesn't die. And 150 years from now, my God will be watching over grandchildren I never met, property that I grabbed for the kingdom. He'll be watching over my children's children. He'll be watching over to see that nothing that I've done is wasted. And I'm not completely sure I know the saints 200, 300 years ago. I'll meet them in heaven someday, and so will you, that they entered into this partnership. They made Jesus first. And they took dominion for the kingdom. And they gave their children to the Lord. And we're all standing on their shoulders. I don't know their names. I don't know who did this. But I know somebody did. And every little bit of dominion that I'm able to take and that we're able to take together. And you, on behalf of the church of God. And every soul that's born again. I know I'm standing on the shoulders of another generation I've never met. But they have a vested interest in the seeds they planted and Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that they sit about right now in a great cloud of witnesses. There's somebody yelling, come on, Cornerstone. I got this going for you. Don't drop the ball. Let's go. It's a partnership. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added to you. Seek God second, and all those things will be taken from you. You'll die. Your children won't serve the Lord, and they'll fritter it away. But the things that we do on behalf of the kingdom of God 
are eternal. This has been Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. God himself blew on his tree so that there would be a light. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus. There is no salvation outside of the church. Thank you for tuning in.